Please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word, I do invite you to now turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, this morning we'll be looking at verses 10 to 22. I can't help but laugh. I mentioned in Sunday school you're not going to find a perfect person in this church. You're certainly not going to find it in your pastor. Uh, For those of you confused, we're not going to recognize the seniors again this week. Uh, That is a grammatical error from your pastor and leaving that in the bulletin. Um, But uh, because it is in there, we recognize you seniors. Um, Again, you're worth it twice. Well, this morning, in some ways, we are continuing the uh, discussion that we had from last week. If you were with us last week in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Peter is warning the church about false teachers, false teachers that would uh, come into the church with a desire to lead people astray with seductive teaching and sinful practice. And in those latter verses, you you get this picture of how God is not idle when this takes place. It's not that God lets them run rampant, uh, but God's judgment is active, and God is protecting His church and will protect His church. And so we end uh, the first half of verse 10 on a bit of a high note. Um, Well, this week, Peter continues on in discussing these matters And here, to be honest, he paints a much bleaker picture. While the word is not mentioned here in in 1 through 10, they're called false teachers. Uh, In the second section, the the best title for these people sneaking into the church would be apostate or those who engage in apostasy. And, excuse me, um, that is the practice of Um, turning against a religious or political group of people, coming in, uh, becoming like one of them, and then turning your back on it, uh, whether that's passively or aggressively. And here in this case, uh, the ones we see in in the second half of chapter 2 are aggressive in their apostasy. And so Peter will be describing these people again for us uh, this morning, uh, giving us a picture, a sketch of who they are and what they're doing. And by doing so, he will also be condemning them. Their very sins, their very actions, that which they seek to do, ultimately become their mode of judgment. And I'll be honest with you this morning, uh, this is a hard passage. The gospel-centered focus, the, the, the hope in this passage, what we should take away as believers really is guard your heart. Be very careful how you live. Take sin seriously because by not doing so, it can lead you down a path that ultimately could end you here as an apostate, which is a damnable offense. The actual only technically correct way to use that word Uh, to damn you, to send you into judgment, uh, utterly condemn your soul. Um, That's what not taking our sins seriously can ultimately lead to if we're not careful. Um, And so the warning here is don't be like this. (laughs) The hope here is Jesus Christ is greater than even these sins. Jesus Christ through his blood can cover even what we will describe and discuss today. 
And so we will talk about some very serious matters this morning. But even here in the introduction, I, I can't prep you for this passage without telling you there is hope in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That has to be said before we start or else we'll get too depressed along the way. Uh, but there is hope in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That being said, I, I do invite you to follow along with me this morning. As Peter gives us a sobering sketch of apostasy, um, I want to start in the, the second half of uh, verse 10 and then read to the end of the chapter. Uh, would you please follow along with me? Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational creatures, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deception while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilement of this world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. It will be a hope to he and she that believes, but it will stand as judgment for those who reject him and reject his teaching. Would you please bow with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for your help in this hour. Lord, may the truth of your word be revealed. We have a weighty passage before us, a, a, a group of people that hate you and hate your teaching and hate the church so much so that they infiltrated and sneak in and try to seduce people away from the way of truth and the way of righteousness. And while we soberly observe this, O oh Lord, we also see that our God is greater. 
that your judgment is sure and true and coming, that your church will persevere. And Lord, there is nowhere we can go, no sin too great, to escape the saving grace of Jesus Christ if we but turn to you in faith. Repent of our sin, confess our need for you, and cling to Jesus Christ. So while we talk about these matters, may they draw us closer to you as our Lord and Savior. And if there be anyone here or anyone online that is hearing this message this day and does not yet believe, may the terror and the weight of this passage hang over them to the degree they cry out, Save me, O Lord, lest I drown. I pray all of these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever wonder how you are described by other people? I mean, graduation season, my mind has gone back. Um, I know my school did it, and I'm sure many of yours. We had um, elections, and we voted people, you know, most likely to ex- succeed, most likely to do this. And, you know, I small town in, in Mississippi, we had most likely to go to prison, and we had some pretty funny ones. I don't, I don't, I don't remember if that one came true or not. But um, I do know the state of um, those in our school that was voted most likely to succeed. Uh, a friend of mine, um, our valedictorian, uh, she's a Christian, currently a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, married a military officer and pilot. Uh, she currently um, teaches women's self-defense classes, competes professionally uh, in, um, on the side for fun uh, while working in research for Alzheimer's in uh, an organization. That's a pretty good, you know, you vote someone most li- likely to succeed and then that's the sketch of their life. That's not bad. That, that, that's not bad. Jury's out on the other one. Um, <laughs> we'll see. But my, my, my point this morning, the reason I bring that up is we all want to be thought of well, don't we? We all want to be known for good things. We want our life to represent something. When, when people speak of us and speak about us, we want a list of something to be proud of. And we like to remember those people and think about them. But there are sometimes people are remembered not for good reasons. They are known not because of the great things they have accomplished and all that they are doing, but by their own sinful hearts, by their own selfish desires. You think of the great wicked people of this world and and, and throughout history, and you think about the terrible acts that they have accomplished, but they are remembered. They are known. Well, in some ways, that's what we've got going on here in our passage. Peter is writing to a church, a church that is remembered. We're remembering them today. These churches in Asia Minor that are facing great persecution, that are desperately trying to share the gospel amidst um, all the trials and turmoil that they're facing. And that's put against these false teachers, these wicked prophets, these apostate uh, men and women who are sneaking in and teaching bad teaching and, and trying to entice people away from the church, really serving as a negative case study of uh, look at them so you know who not to be, who not to follow. These are not the ones you want leading. These are not the ones you want raising your children. These are not the, the, the ones you put on the wall and say, be like this. 
They warn us. They, they warn us of this is what it looks like to follow sin and passion and pleasure. This is what it looks like to reject the Lord your God. And so this morning what we are going to see in this passage is really four aspects, four character markers of these people. And each one should warn us. Each one should show us how not to live and who not to be. And as we will see, it actually should make us pity them. We're going to see, again, four character sketches of the apostate this morning. One, those who are apostate revile the truth. They hate the truth. Secondly, they revel in sin. They take joy and pleasure in sin. Thirdly, they revolt against the right way, turning against God and the truth. And ultimately, what we really will see this morning is that they reflect their own sinful nature. They are acting in and out of their own sin. So as we consider this, let's think about each of these things, each of these character sketches, beginning with this warning about how they revile that which is true. And I want to make something very clear before I start. I, my hope is not this morning to, to scare you. I'm not a, a doom and gloom kind of preacher. Um, that's not how I believe God's word um, always works. Now, there is some very dark passages, and this itself is one. But I want to make something very clear this morning. You cannot accidentally find yourself in a state of apostasy. This is not one of those, I took three wrong left turns and here I am in a road. I didn't know that I was here and lo, look, I'm an apostate, false teacher, um, reviling God and hating the church. This does not happen by accident. Um, no, these people and the state of apostasy is an intentional rejection of God. Peter calls these people bold and Peter calls these people willful, bold and willful. You could also translate that as daring and self-pleasing. They know well what they're doing. They know well what they want, and they are after it. I love how one commentator puts it. Being bold in this way is a, a spirit of no concern for the consequences for oneself or others. So, no concern for the consequences for oneself or others. We would also call that reckless. And then willful is the attitude of being so obsessed with your own wishes that nothing else can be taken into consideration. Selfish, reckless, focused on me. And no one and nothing else matters. That is the first description we get of many in this passage about the apostate. These are not the characteristics of someone that casually says something or does something wrong. These are not the characteristics of someone who um, stumbles into a sin, repents of that sin, turns from that sin, and maybe they struggle with it. Maybe it's a different sin because we are all going to miss the mark. We're all going to fall short. But no, the, the apostate are a special group of people who are plowing their way through life, saying that it's about me and me and me, and I don't care who gets in my way. I don't care who gets hurt. I don't care what else happens. But it's not even just that. That, that in and of itself is bad enough, you know, to, to be self-centered and self-focused and self-righteous. 
But another key feature about the apostate and, and what makes them so unique, they're not only self-centered, they're also hateful and spiteful. Because Peter goes on to say, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So these false teachers aren't just self-centered and arrogant. They take joy in blaspheming, casting judgment on others. They take great joy in not only elevating themselves, but beating others down. You know, it works kind of two ways. You can, you can make yourself make much of yourself by elevating yourself, but you can also make much of yourself by pummeling everybody else so that they get lower by consequence, making you higher. That's what the apostate are doing. They are making much of themselves and beating down everyone else. And in, and in fact, there's one of two ways to interpret what they're doing here. But they're not even doing this with humanity. They're blaspheming the heavenly host. And this is a, a, a situation of the lesser and greater. If angels, greater heavenly beings, will refuse to blaspheme, will refuse to give judgment and offer judgment, which, by the way, they probably could and do a right job of it because they spend their time in God's presence and they listen to God and the heavenly host and they know his plan when he reveals it to them, they could probably cast judgment and it be fair judgment. But if they're not willing to do it, how much more sinful is it when mankind does it? And I want to I go over the, real quickly the, the two possible interpretations here because there's some tricky stuff in this passage. It says that these false teachers, false prophets, the apostate, blaspheme fallen angels. One of two interpretations. One, last week we talked about the angelic host that, that fell and is awaiting final judgment. And so these false teachers are mocking Satan and the heavenly host that rebelled against God. And so they are so confident in themselves, they're making fun of Satan and the demons and sin and temptation and their power and their ability to draw people away from God. That could be what they're saying here. These people are so wicked and so self-centered and so righteous, self-righteous, that they're saying, this Satan fellow, he's nothing. There's nothing to him. His, his demonic host, no, they're not that bad. And they're mocking them. They're, they're making fun of them in a way that the heavenly angels who fought against them and cast them along with Jesus down to await judgment, the ones that carried out that act won't cast judgment. So when, when Jesus waged, when they waged war against God and Jesus cast them down, the ones that were present won't cast judgment. The ones who were there and knows what happened won't do it. But yet these apostate people deign to do so. That's one way we could look at just how, how prideful these people are. Another way to interpret this is it's not the demonic host that they're blaspheming, but rather, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. It's the heavenly angels. And so the, it's the opposite. It's these apostate are not making fun of Satan. They're making fun of God. And they're making fun of the angelic host. And they're saying basically the opposite of what could, they could be saying about Satan. God, oh, it's not that important. It's not that big a deal. 
his angels, his angelic host, eh, that doesn't really matter. You're making too much of a big deal about this. You're, you're trying too hard to obey those scriptures. You're trying too much to follow him, all those silly rules. He's just trying to keep you from having fun. He just doesn't want you to live your life the way you want to. And so these apostate could be basically repeating what Satan did in the garden. It could be that they're at the point that they are simply mocking God, mocking his teaching, and making little of him. And so the blasphemous judgment that's being withheld from the angels there is the angelic host not judging the apostate. And so they're not casting judgment on these apostate people, even though they're clearly wrong. And they're clearly speaking about something they have no knowledge of, they have no authority to, and is not their place. And so again, you you get this idea of if the heavenly host won't do it, why in our arrogance do we think it's okay for us? And whichever way we attempt to understand this language here, and and there's a bit of a theological debate, so I, I offer them to you. The point is made. We need to be very careful about how we speak about matters that belong to God. Peter really opens this up as he continues in verse 12. Irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. And by the way, they will be destroyed in their destruction. It's like, and we'll talk about this more in just a moment, they're running around setting fires because they like setting fires, and then all of a sudden they find themselves in a circle and closed in all sides. Guess what's going to happen? They're going to burn with their own fire. The, the, the sin that they are engaged in, this, this judgmental self-righteousness, I'm going to lift myself up by beating everybody else down, is going to be their act of judgment as they find themselves on a pedestal all alone, and, and God's wrath comes to them when they see his presence on the day of judgment, and they answer by themselves before him, and they have no one there, no one around them, and they give him their best. Here's all I have made of myself. I mean, Peter breaks them down into irrational creatures of instinct. He, he makes them animalistic here. These are savage beasts that will be slaughtered because they dare to talk about things that they are ignorant, they have no knowledge of. I, I love... One commentator, he makes a practical application. And this is the hardest part of this passage is giving the practical application. But he says this. The lesson is this. The angels know that decisions of the law are not made by them, but are given to God. Even when the case is obvious. So Christian, do not treat God's law lightly, but recognize that he and he alone has the power to enforce it. We are not God. Leave to God what is God's. We need to be very careful how we speak about one another, especially on matters of judgment. Because what does the Bible call everyone? People who are made in God's image after his likeness. 
It is always best to say very little or nothing at all when you do not have the knowledge or authority to speak, especially when it comes to the eternal state of someone. And so this is the first piece of the puzzle, if you will. This is the first thing we we see about the apostate is that they revile the truth. They hate that which is true and people who practice and proclaim this. But if that's what they hate, what do they love? What, what is their driving factor? Well, it's sin. And we see this as we continue on in our passage. And there's a very important consequence. I'm going to come back to it in 12 and 13. I'm not ignoring that, that, that destruction to come. Uh, but jump down to, to verse 13. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deception while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Let's put it very plainly. They take, very, they take joy in sinning publicly. They take great joy in making their sin known, exposing themselves before the world. They're not trying to hide what they do. They're not sneaking around about it. They lack shame and guilt. And let me just say again, I, I want to I flood this passage with, with spiritual application. If you find this passage and it's making you a little uneasy, which it should, here's a good spiritual indicator. If you, you, you're worried, like, I may be an apostate. Well, here's, some, here's a way you can check. When you sin, because when, when you, you will, is your heart burned by it? Does the Holy Spirit prick you when you engage in sin? Does it hurt? Knowing that you have offended God and offended your fellow man, does it hurt? If that's the case, you're not apostate. But let me warn you. We have the ability, and our confession talks about this in, in Assurance of Faith, um, on that chapter, I think it's 19. We have the ability to repress that. And so say we sin in a certain way. And then we say, I'm not going to feel guilty. And then the next time it comes, and then we sin in that way again, and we say, I'm not going to feel guilty. And then we, that sin comes again, and we sin in that way again, and I'm not going to feel guilty. It won't take long to the point you sin in that way, and you don't feel guilty. You get that which you're pursuing. That's dangerous. Because what do the apostate do? They sin without fear of consequence. They sin without worry about God and God's holiness and God's righteousness. And I'm not saying if that's your case that you are necessarily apostate. I'm just telling you, be very, very careful of your heart. Because if you are not burdened by your sin, that means you are numbing yourself to it. And, and you can find yourself time after time, moment after moment, year after year at this place where you're mocking God. He doesn't punish me for that. It's not that bad. I can do what I want. I don't need him. And so watch that spiritual spectrum. Watch that gauge of your own heart. In particular, these that are apostate, and you could pick any sin. They love to engage in them all. But Peter, and the, the case going on in Asia Minor, was that of sexual nature. Their, their lust for adultery, the, the, the sin in their eyes, enticing others, drawing them in. 
I had a professor or a pastor one time tell me nine times out of ten, he had been a pastor for about 40 years at that point in a college town, nine times out of ten when a college male student came to him for counseling and said he was struggling with believing the truths of the Bible, he was sleeping with his girlfriend and either wanted to not feel guilty about it or reconcile it with the Bible. He said, Aaron, I can, I can write, read it like a book. Nine times out of ten, when a guy comes to me and says, I'm struggling with the truths of the Bible in college at that age, he was most likely sleeping with his girlfriend and feeling either feeling guilty or not feeling guilty and feeling guilty about that. Sexual sin is particularly dangerous because it brings with it a rejection of Christianity and Christian morals, if continued, and it's easy to continue in. And so I offer again, this is a warning, dear church, here, here, this passage, the hope in it is hear it, use it as a barometer, and don't do it. Don't live like this. If you're tempted to sin, especially tempted to sin in sexual ways, be very, very careful of your heart. Find an accountability partner. Reach out to someone. Reach out to me. Grab someone in this church. Tell them of your struggles. Say, I need help in this because this is too tempting. This looks too good. And it is easy to be drawn in. And once you get in, it is hard to get out. It is the primary tool that the apostate were using in, in the church in Asia Minor. And I'm just telling you today, and you know this. You know this in society and culture. Um, this is so prevalent and so available and so widely used. We don't even recognize it as a problem anymore. It's just more kind of a, eh, that's how society is. And again, I, I need to stop. I am not saying in any way that someone who falls into sexual sin, that someone who um, speaks arrogantly about God and the things of God and the way of God, that someone who hears these truths and rejects them cannot be saved by the shed blood of Christ. Hear me if you hear nothing else. You can ignore everything else I'm telling you today. Well, please don't. You need to hear it. But if you hear nothing else, the shed blood of Jesus Christ can cover even these sins. You cannot be too far gone that Jesus cannot bring you back. Please hear that. That being said, don't go there in the first place. <laughs> don't walk down that road. And if you're on that road, turn around now. Please turn around now. It is not worth it. You can find yourself in a position. You can be saved by the shed blood of Christ. You can be forgiven. But guess what? The thief on the cross still died that day. The apostate love their sin. They love their sinfulness. They don't care who it hurts. They don't care who it affects. Because ultimately what they're doing is revolting against God and the ways of truth. That's what we see in our, our, our third point. They have hearts trained in greed. Peter calls them accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. One commentator says of the importance of using that story here, 
Balaam is the example of the false teacher who leads people astray for personal gain. You can read about it in Numbers 22 to 24. It shows how he tried again and again to prophesy against Israel for Balak's reward. In the end, after failing to destroy Israel, he seeks to do so morally. He can't destroy them verbally, so he tries to destroy them morally. He's the prototype for a false teacher who seeks reward or popularity by persuading God's people that the standard can be lowered. His behavior is called nothing short of madness because it is contrary to all good sense. There, there's too many things to say and, and, and too many jokes not to, not to give. Balaam's donkey in that story is the wise counselor when the prophet that's been given the gift of prophecy is the dumb animal. Let that sink in for a moment. The, 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 the human being that had been given the gift of prophecy is the fool. And the dumb animal is seen as the one who acts in wisdom and, and speaks the truth. And that's what Peter says false prophets are. They are nothing more than dumb animals, fools. You see, false teachers in their own minds are living their best life now. But really, when we, when we peel all the layers back, they are a sad demonstration of what it looks like to walk away from God. God's law is not just there to tell you what to do and what not to do. God's law is there because it is the best way for us to live as his people. I can promise you it is far easier and far more enjoyable to live holy lives that honor God and follow his commandments than to live into sin and pursue your own passion. This account is a warning against pursuing sin. We should look at these people with pity. We should soberly fear their teaching and, and keep it away from our, our church and from our people. But at the same time, we should look at them with great sadness. Because at the end of the day, sin will only leave us lacking. It will not, nor can it bring us joy. And again, as we look at the apostate, they have already tasted what's good. It's not that they never knew it. It's not that that's all they understand. It's not that that was their life. These were people who were in the church. These were people who heard the truth and said they professed the truth. These were people who claimed to know what was right, who seemed to do what was right, and then after a period of time rejected that and sought to bring people with them. And let us be clear, they will face judgment for this. This is not a passage that, that promotes you know, false teachers and says, go be a false teacher and it's going to work out well for you. Again, I want to go back to that, that transitioning section in 12 and 13. They will be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. God will judge them and their lives and their hearts and their rejection of him. Whether it comes on this earth or if it comes in the final judgment, it will come and it will be sufficient. They will, as we all, will give an account to God for the lives that they lived and the sins that they committed. And what they will find is they weren't as free as they thought they were. Ultimately, 
as we reflect upon the false teachers and what's happening, we come to the conclusion they're merely following their own sinful desires. They are slaves to that which they call freedom, that which they think sets them free and gives them joy and gives them purpose and captures them, holds them down, and restricts and restrains their lives and their hearts. We see this in that last section there. Listen to some of the language Peter uses. He calls these false teachers waterless springs, slaves of corruption. Peter says it would have been better if they'd never known it. And then I love this. They are like dogs who return to their vomit. They are like pigs who once washed return to their own filth. If you ever had a dog, you know what this is talking about. If you've ever been around pigs, that's not all mud. Think about it, or go home and look up pig farming. It's not a pretty picture. And that's what Peter says these people are. There's a profound emptiness in them. They speak loudly and yet do not offer anything of truth, hope, and comfort. Peter goes so far to say the gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. And I will say, verse 21 is probably one of the most haunting verses of all Scripture. It is, it is, I have wrestled with this verse all week. It would have been better for them to never have heard or known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Do you hear what he's saying? It would have been better had you never heard the gospel because you heard it. You said you believed it. You Put yourself in a position to be around others who believed it. And then you rejected it. You mocked them. You mocked their God. And you turned your back on it all. If you can, again, take away anything from our time this morning, please don't let this be said of you. Do not make this your legacy. If we do a character sketch of your life, We vote you most likely to succeed, most likely to live a Christ-filled life. Please don't let us be ones to look at your life at the end and go, oh, that didn't work out. You have all tasted the truth by being here today. Excuse me. The gospel has been presented week after week. I have done my best to interject it frequently this morning. And if you're new today and this is your first time hearing it, here's a spoiler alert in about five minutes. Or if I'll finally end, we're going to do communion and you're going to hear it again. If you reject that message, if you reject this good news, the hope of the saving grace of Jesus Christ by his shed blood, You are, as Peter says, a dog that is so filthy that it returns to his vomit. You are like the pig that after being cleaned wallows in its own filth. Please heed the warning of the apostle. Beware the enticing lives of the apostate. What they offer is rotten. And when we get to the day of judgment, you're going to hear one of two things. Depart from me, for I never knew you, which is what the apostate will hear. Or you will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come enter into my kingdom and find rest.
I plea with you today, consider this passage. Trust the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength, for He is your only hope of salvation. And these people, with all their tricks and all their ways and all their temptations, they will not overcome, they will not preserve against and over His church. His church will withstand these attacks. And they will continue to do so until he comes again and casts them into final judgment. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, our passage today really is a gospel call. Trust in you. Trust in your word and your good news and your message. Live as you call us to live. Accept the shed blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Take his life for our own. Turn from our sin and follow you with all that we have. Or live like pigs in the mud. Lord, I don't, I don't want that to be the case for anyone here. I don't want that to be said of anyone listening today. Lord, through your spirit and by your power, would you grant all of us eyes to see and ears to hear? Everyone, all, all of us, Lord. Even those that are in the nursery today. Even those joining us online that couldn't be here through sickness or through traveling or whatever it may be. Every single one, Lord. Would you grant them understanding? May they repent of their sin and turn to you. Lord, the apostate aren't that scary. We need to take them seriously. They do seek to draw your people away. But at the end of the day, they're living out their own sin and they will be judged by it. Our God is greater than their power and their strength. Lord, protect your church. Protect your people. Watch over us. And remind us, no matter what is said of us, we are yours. And there's nothing better to be said about a person then I belong to God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for this time, for your word and for its truth. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen.